In roller derby, holding space is an empowering, often intimidating act of strength and strategy for oneself and or teammates. Holding Space, the podcast, clears the floor for conversations that touch upon race, class, identity, and privilege to amplify stories, build community, and make more connections in the skate world. Expect lots of smart, dope skate people musing about life on and off eight wheels and silliness. Can't forget the silliness that you never knew you needed and won't be able to live without. This is Holding Space with Magical Realism. Welcome. y'all as mentioned at the end of episode 25 mic check jumping spider this episode is dedicated to the 10-part espn basketball documentary the last dance Uh, viewable on netflix and the espn this documentary about michael jordan and the 98 bulls's final quest for the nba championship is definitely recommended viewing for roller skaters. As I was already going to be talking to Jumping Spider, I was really amped when he agreed to discuss the documentary with me. If you listen to episode 25, which I totally recommend you do, because we had another awesome conversation about his life and his role in sports and derby, how he got into derby and his coaching and announcing and what have you. But besides that, I was really amped because he's a Chicagoan, he's very into basketball, and he's also a roller derby coach, as I just mentioned. So as you might imagine, our conversation went everywhere from beginning with my unresolved animus as a New York Knicks fan, who were routinely antagonized by his bulls, to the parallels and differences between roller derby and basketball. A word of warning, Spider and I do go into spoilers, but I think this is an enjoyable listen whether or not you've watched the documentary, but just FYI. Enjoy. A championship was assured when Michael Jordan was here. It was one, because you're young and you don't know any better, but two, because he was just that damn good. Did you take it for granted that this was... Oh, your lot oh, in life yeah. that you would win. <laughs> winning oh, yeah. That's why when Jordan retired and the Bulls came out next year and Ray Clay on the public address was like, you're world champion Chicago Bulls, I was, I was hurt. I was like, you're lying to us. These are not the world champion Bulls. These are, these are imposters. This is, this is Tony Kukoc and a bunch of scrubs. And I was hurt. And then the Bulls were absolute trash. And I swear to you, I did not touch a basketball for three years. I am six foot three and a half inches tall right now. You know how many scholarships I missed out on but having this romantic John Keatsian experience with basketball and just quitting? Like, there's, no, there's nothing that can be said anymore because Michael Jordan is no longer here. That was so stupid. So I definitely took it for granted that the Bulls were going to be on top forever. <laughs> <laughs> I had a different experience coming up in the 90s and being a Knicks fan, let me tell you. I know. <laughs> I, I get it. I, it, was a, it, it was having a, a certain Indiana team and a certain Chicago team. Oh. The Midwestern teams, actually, as a matter of fact, y'all could never get your feet off our freaking, your high tops off our necks <laughs> in New York. And it was dang frustrating, let me tell and, you. And you got to tell me this, because I... I watched Do the Right Thing around the end of my college career, and there was a three-year period where I just had this insatiable pull towards, I need to go to New York and experience the city, and I love it, and I connect so many things about it with Chicago, even though it's, it's so wildly different. It's older. It's, it's more um, compressed. Like The green spaces are, more, are, are so much larger because they have to be. But I've always loved New York. But tell me this. Does New York just see the Midwest, including Chicago and Cleveland and Milwaukee and Detroit? Are those just flyover states for everybody who comes up in New York? Are we talking like now or 90s? Both, I guess. Yes. No. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. I think that in in the 90s, for sure, probably. I feel like people would have a really hard time to like pointed out on a map for you Man. <laughs> uh, but like but and that was like enemy terrain if we're talking right. about as a basketball fan that was where reggie miller and 
and Michael Jordan lived. Like right. that was that was like that it's was like the, the giant Midwest on the calendar on the yeah. on the on the uh, map. fed mofos coming. Here up there be the dragons. <laughs> exactly. No, but you know now it's a different story. You guys have Obama to thank for that. <laughs> Barack, Barack was Barack made it so that people knew where Chicago was. He he, you know he put he literally put y'all on the map. Yo, no, no, that's I'm hilarious. Kidding. Sort of. <laughs> yeah, speaking of, because it's, it's funny you mentioned that because it wasn't like the famous story that Michelle and Barack went on their first date to watch do the right thing. And that's then, right. That's true. And like came up in the 90s and at Columbia or what have you and then went to Chicago. But, you know, I think New Yorkers are very navel gazy. It's it's the five boroughs. We're also very provincial, so no, <laughs> so I, I our gaze elsewhere and externally is very, very much hindered by that. How did you hear about the documentary? As soon as the commercial dropped last year or two years ago, maybe even, it was, we were ready. Uh, like, I was absolutely ready because, like I said, the Bulls have been trash. The Bulls had the era where Derrick Rose came in and we were good. Like, I, that's probably my favorite Bulls team of recent memory because they were so hungry. They were so, like, down in the dirt, digging through. They were, they were a, 85 to 78 type win team where we're going to beat you 85 points to 78 points. They're going to get some dunks. Rose is going to drop some random push shots. And it, that, that team was so much fun to watch. But other than that, and the baby bulls in the late two thousands, it, it's, I mean, it, that it's odd now because I think even as analytics and data takes hold, people still are looking at you. Are you a good team? If you win a championship, in your era. And if you don't, then you're kind of an also ran, eh, you know, whatever. So it's, it's hard to judge, but it was so, I was re- we were really excited. We we're really excited to see this documentary, not only because we we're going to get to relive this, but we were going to see unprecedented looks at the 1998 last dance controversy ridden Beatles level mania bulls. And it was somewhat disappointing just because it turned into a Michael Jordan retrospective. And no disrespect to Mike, but I read the Jordan rules. He's who he is. I know a lot about Mike already. So the parts that we didn't know about, like Scottie Pippen's contract negotiations that season, Steve Kerr and what he went through with his father uh, being killed overseas, which I, I knew about just in my sports knowledge, but I know other people didn't know about and with Mike's relationship with the with security, the letter he read from his mom from college, the stuff like that, that was cool. But a lot of it was just like, you know, Mike being, it was kind of like the last seven-eighths of his Hall of Fame speech over again, where at the beginning he was very introspective and he was overcome with the emotion of the whole thing. And then he just got real petty and started talking trash to the people who had wronged him like he always did. It's so interesting because I think about that time now and as you have your sort of nostalgic and hometown pride and love for your team and anyone that destroys them, (laughs) you kind of hate. But so I remember having a sort of distaste in my mouth for the Bulls back then and for the Pacers and anyone who made the the Knicks and the Knicks fans' lives a misery. but now I, I, I got to look at it and I got to look at them. And I think I have the distance to say, like, you got to recognize excellence. And so I really appreciated getting this really deep dive, this really in-depth opportunity to explore that. It was a Michael Jeffrey Jordan hagiography. Hey, it really was. <laughs> and uh, I think it's the only way probably to get him to be a producer on this. And to right. On he was like, this. y'all are going to talk about me if I'm going to be a part of this. Yes. Black Jesus is, if Black Jesus is going to be a producer, <laughs> we're going to have to, you're going to be Black Jesus evangelicals. <laughs> like, that was so crazy when Reggie said that. I did not know about that either. <laughs> And he kept like making those sort of like God jokes, you know, <laughs> you know, and to the credit of this documentary, I straddle like, you know, back and forth or waver back and forth between thinking that this documentary would be like maybe 25 to 
50% different if Jordan wasn't such a integral part in its back behind the scenes making the, the pre-production aspect of it. I feel like it, it did get slightly critical and it would have maybe been a bit more revealing, but it also would have been as adoring. You have to be like his, you, you can't downplay his accomplishments. His like superhuman feats almost, you know, yeah. there is something to that. I think um, that was my impression. But again, I agree with you. I, I really did appreciate the back, the the explorations into the rest of the team or the the my the major players in the team. I wish there had been more. I found it interesting that we only got like two sound bites from the Jordan kids in the last episode. Yeah, right. What about you? It would have been really interesting to talk to Jeff and Marcus Jordan about coming up. Um, I know uh, Jack Silverstein, if you get the chance to look up at Reed Jack on Twitter, look him up um, just in terms of if, if you enjoy sports and kind of under the radar sports knowledge, he's a treasure trove for that. He's a Chicago sports historian is what he describes himself as. And he was talking about why Luke Longley wasn't included. Who was, he was on all three of those championship teams from the later years in the 90s. And it would have been interesting to hear him talk. What are his reasons? I think it was just he I think Luke just said no, like not in a angry or vindictive way. It was just like he didn't want to be I think he's just living his life and he, he did it's not something that he wanted to do. He wrote a book that I want to read called Running with the Bulls about his career in basketball and I think about just his time with that team. And so it would have been interesting to see from his perspective what it would have been like because he was a starter on those teams, but he wasn't a widely heralded starter on those teams. So I think it would have been a a mix of Dennis Rodman and Steve Kerr's experience where they were known, but they weren't a face. Like even Bill Wennington, he, McDonald's in the Chicago area had a sandwich named after him for a hot second. And he was the backup center. Luke Longley didn't really get that. So it would have been interesting to see from him. Randy Brown, it, when when they won the, the championship in 96 against the Sonics, Randy Brown was one of those guys who kind of glommed on to Mike. And he was a, he's a good player on his own, right? But he really kind of glommed on to Mike. So when, he, when Mike f- jumps and grabs the basketball, Randy Brown comes over and kind of grabs it with him. And you always saw him close to the, close to Mike. Like, when Steve Kerr hits that shot and comes off the floor and he high-fives uh, Jordan coming off the floor, Randy Brown goes off to hug him, and Steve, like, stops him. So there was something on the team where they weren't really messing with Randy Brown like that. And I know there's people who are more well-connected, who have done more work in Chicago sports than I have, but I would want to hear those stories because he was on the Chicago uh, Bulls tr- coaching staff, and he had beef with Jimmy Butler when Jimmy was, was leaving town. Because they were like, the people were saying Randy Brown was like a mole for the management of the organization. So even though he's somewhat a persona non grata with the Bulls and maybe with the players, it would have been interesting to hear his perspective on it. And then just some other people who uh, were in the management part of the organization, if they're still around, like Tim Hallam, who they talked to at least once or twice, either in flashback footage or current interviews was director of PR for a long time. So like that part where they had to hustle Dennis out of the arena after the interviews and they showed him like running on the Madison street to get in his truck. He would have so many stories. You just know he would. So it would have been really cool to talk to him. And then I don't want to neglect it. Jack said this. Well, Juanita Jordan should have yes. gotten some time. Yes. <laughs> Juanita Jordan definitely should have gotten some time because that divorce was messy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and that marriage was messy too, or like the beginning of that marriage was messy too. I I also think that there was more to be explored in terms of the gambling allegations and me, I don't even want to say this, <laughs> but I was going to say maybe issues with substance or not, but like, I don't Talking know. Talking about my thighs, that jaundice that he's got. Exactly, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to comment. I don't have an MD after my name or anything, but it just seemed like there was, it, it kind of felt like the the producers and the documentary makers like would pick a little bit of a 
of an interesting like scab and kind of book then would leave it alone <laughs> you know what i mean like they they'd maybe like peel back a band-aid and look at something but then kind of just like be like all right okay you're good to go <laughs> like you know and like for instance the the storyline with the with the the ailing security guard um, Gus, right? Mm-hmm. How did that end? I mean, I, you know, I think I just wanted to have a little more profundity in terms of maybe it was too difficult. Maybe there wasn't something there, but it just kind of it kept like establishing all of these threads and then dropping them as they no longer served Jordan's narrative and that kind of frustrated me uh players included you know (laughs) you hear about rodman and what like episode three it felt like and then he comes back up at the at the final game right and this just kind of felt really disjointed i wanted more i get that if you watch the dennis rodman standalone documentary that they did it's good it's really good the way it's shot the way that they do scenes even jamie fox doing the narration is very good. And so I think a lot of the things that weren't included and also were included in the last dance were things that you could get in that documentary with greater detail and depth. So at least there's that available to people if that's what, you know, if that's something that they were looking for. But I agree with you, other things that we should have and could have seen weren't included. As the documentary went on too, I enjoyed learning about Scotty Pippen's backstory. I had no idea about that. Oh my goodness, that contract, that nightmarish contract, that poor man. But I would have appreciated someone to like tie those threads together, like have the talking head expert that kind of was like, this is what this means in a historical context for black athletes. How do you let someone go seven years without renegotiating their contract it just seems like they were being used as this hot commodity and then dispose of them or like just kind of push them aside and and trade them when their contract is about to expire and they're at the peak of their game and have just won you a sixth ring there could have been a lot more mentioned about the disposable aspects of of these players at their peak at that moment that wasn't said well, it's wild because, like, and I alluded to analytics a little bit before, but having so much data available on players makes them expendable long before they're where they would like to end their career and where they're useful in terms of where they can contribute to a team. They are expendable long before that point now because the data and everything that people have used and have available to quantify what a player can do for a team basically puts you on an average player, I think a year or two less than what they previously had been. Steve Kerr would have been playing for a long time because he was a great three-point shooter and analytics has placed such a premium on three-point shooting for the simple fact that three is more than two. But a guy like Mike, who wasn't Mike, would have been out of the league for a while, which actually we don't even need to think about what that would look like because it's Carmelo Anthony. (laughs) He had such a hard time getting back in the league because people said he just shoots jump shots that are inefficient. He doesn't go to the rim enough. He doesn't get easy shots. He doesn't shoot threes well, and he would have been out. So it's, I think the fact that you had a player like Pippen who was so underappreciated, even as good as he is, and even if you look around, if you talk to other players, they don't respect Scottie Pippen the way that he should be respected. There's a, Inside the NBA did a summer series every, every year, and the, the, the participants would change. But I remember there was one time where they were talking about who was their best 50 players and like who was their next 10. And somehow Scottie Pippen came up, and Isaiah Thomas was on the show. And it was like Isaiah and maybe Chris Webber and somebody else. And Isaiah was abhorrent of the fact that Scottie Pippen would be included in this best of all-time list and somebody like cracked up and agreed with him and a long time ago and I, I don't care about naming names because i don't know what this dude is doing now no disrespect uh but greg howard was with deadspin and i met him at a, a little kind of a conference thing but i remember him i brought up scotty pippen to him in terms of comparing him to i think uh, comparing him to messi in terms of a guy who could really set the table for you and do so many different things and 
in the context of a team. Leo Messi. Yeah. The Barcelona soccer player, just in case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My bad. You're right. <laughs> Maybe give more context on that. But he just completely dismissed him in terms of, I think he's like, so you wanted me to compare him to a like two-time all-star, run-of-the-mill small forward? And it's ridiculous. Like Scottie Pippen for years had the most playoff steals of anyone who ever played the game. And some of that is because the playoff format was lengthened. But people who played against him acknowledged that Scottie Pippen set a blueprint. And this is in the late 80s when basketball had been around for 40 some odd years. Scottie Pippen set a blueprint for forwards, for small forwards in the game of basketball that LeBron James takes some things from. So... That begs the question, at least in my mind, would Scottie Pippen be a bigger star if he hadn't been so Jordan adjacent or is some of that reflected glow in the eyes of others because of Jordan? Because, and I bring one example, when they were talking about the 92 dream team, I just found it really interesting that they kind of had to preface his being part of that team. It was, and it was something to the effect of, Pippen was having an amazing year and uh, was a part of the dream team, you know? And that kind of made me think like, huh, is that alongside with the contract, was he just like an unsung hero or was, and to his chagrin and to his legacy, his proximity to Jordan during all of those years never really got him his propers. Do you see what I'm talking about, dude? Yeah, no, I get you. Um, we have that test case for when Mike left and the, the year that he was without, uh, the Bulls were without Michael Jordan. Scottie Pippen was the guy. They won 47 games in a very competitive season. Good point. They went to the second round of the playoffs and went seven with the eventual uh, runner-ups in the Knicks. So we, and Scottie was MVP of the All-Star game that year. And for as much as the All-Star game is just a, a have fun and, and go do your thing contest, it's also the best players of the league that season, which as much as Bill Simmons is, I, I don't want to demonetize anything or anything like that in terms of blue language or colorful language, but can I just say Bill Simmons is an asshole? <laughs> no worries. Go for it. <laughs> okay. So Bill Simmons is an asshole, right? But he understands how basketball works very well. And so when you get the best players to play, it means something if you're the most valuable player out of that game. And so for him to be the MVP of the All-Star game that season, where Hakeem and David Robinson, Hakeem Olajuwon and David Robinson, who were two of the best to ever play, and Patrick Ewing, one of the other best to ever play, and these guys were still going strong, that means a lot. He was not Michael Jordan-level top five. He might not even be top 10, but he's definitely a top 20 player in National Basketball Association history. So I think that he, I don't know if he would have carried the Bulls. And he knew that about himself. He talked about that in the Jordan Rules. He's like, if Mike retired, you know, we would still be a a quality contending team. We might go a round or two in the playoffs. We might get a break and get to the conference finals. But we would still be a good team that would be watchable and competitive. We just wouldn't be who we are without Michael Jordan. And so that was the thing about Scottie Pippen. We, we can argue about it, but he understood who he was. He was a great sidekick. He was a fantastic Robin. He was a great Ron Stoppable. He knew his role, and he played it to perfection. Hmm. He was a better Ron Stoppable. Ron was a lot of comic relief on Kim Possible and never really got the shine he deserved. So. Maybe more Patrick Starr is Scottie Pippen. You are going all over my head with these cartoon <laughs> references. <laughs> I'm like, well, I, you know, after, let me just write a, a minute, the 59 or whatever, and like go Google these cartoons that you're talking about. Okay, how about Pete Skeeter? Laura Skeeter could shine on his own, but he was also Doug's good friend. So Scottie Pippen was like a really great Skeeter. Okay. <laughs> You just dated yourself. Oh, I don't even care. That's when cartoons were fantastic. <laughs> You're so funny. We discussed the possible parallels that could be drawn um, to Derby. And you had some really interesting insight. Uh, let me 
quote to you. <laughs> I think there's apt discussions about leadership, camaraderie, coaching that can be gleaned, as well as relationships between player coaches and officials. So it, that intrigued me to no end. What does your derby coaching lend to this analysis? I respect the officials who come out. This is this is difficult because we're an unpaid group of people. We're all volunteers in some respect. So when we go out to about all the preparation beforehand is done by the people who are entertaining on Saturday. Because, you know, if you look at sports as an entertainment business, it's like when you're starting out as a musician and there's no roadies, you go to a place and they're like, hey, you bring your people here and we'll pay you X amount and you'll get some food coupons and you go out there, you put your heart out on stage and people come back and you'll say, nice, nice work, man. That was a great show. Then you take the stage down and you dip out. So in that respect, officials who have historically drawn all of this backlash for the calls they make and don't make, you can't, you cannot disrespect them in the way that has done in sports that we watch. That being said, I, I just feel that if an official, in the rare times where you get an official who is making calls who are, that are incorrect and is making a series of calls that are incorrect, I think it's okay that as long as I don't disrespect them personally, talk about their mama, their family, anything like that, as long as I can say, hey, you are making this call, you are hurting our team and our players and our player, if you want to kick me out, fine. But I need to, my team to know that I am going to the mattresses for them. And I also need you to know that you need to reevaluate what you're doing right now. So as long as I can get kicked out and our captain doesn't have to sit in the penalty box, I think that's perfectly fine. But I think the relationship in roller derby between players and officials, and you see it on Twitter when, when, when officials skating and non-skating talk about the tournaments that they went to, and a great player talk trash about them from some from some point. We can't do that. You just, you, I don't know when that's going to be available in the in the vaunted future where we're all paid for the work we do. Maybe then, maybe mm. then if the um, the cushion will be a bit better, where you can take a tongue lashing and still be like, "Yo, I'm still getting paid. Be bye." But. <laughs> Right that's now, definitely a big deal. That's definitely a big part of it, I think. Because, you know, that's definitely a concern that you hear. I'm not paying for what? Like, I'm I'm paying out of pocket to do this. <laughs> like, right. I'm not even getting paid. Like, I'm putting up my own yeah. money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. But it's, it's, and it's also hard because no matter what, it doesn't matter if you came from a sporting background or not. Some people just don't talk to people, to other people who are doing the same thing as them in a respectful way. And so that has to be taught. I can come to officials and be like, hey, this call is wrong. This call is wrong. This call is wrong. I know this person is not doing this. This call is wrong. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about what you have done. I'm talking about the call that you made. It has nothing to do with you as a person. I'm just saying you need to change this because you're hurting our team and you're taking us out of this game. Some people can't do that. Some people can only express themselves in a way that just is going to make that, that, that official feel bad about themselves as a person, which is, is wholly unfair. There's a, there's a scene, not in the Jordan documentary, not in the last dance, but in one of the um, championship videos, it's the 1992 championship. They won against the Blazers. Michael Jordan gets a technical and one of the referees gets caught on video. I think it's Jess Kersey saying to Mike, as he's standing at the free throw um, box, that is not a true statement, but you were talking about me and I never talk about you. And that's really important. If you talk about a call that somebody made, that's fine. That's different. But if you talk about them, that's wrong. That's wrong. I agree. Having witnessed and participated in those kind of discussions about the sensitivity around having any sort of back and forth between the skaters and officials and the heated nature of it. I, it's, it's a loaded and rife topic for sure. That's definitely a difference. And I think that we should also kind of preface this whole discussion and in terms of 
we're looking at like the diametrical opposite of, of derby and sport. So it's like looking at a funhouse mirror in a sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I think it's a really helpful exercise to do as athletes, as a, as fans or people who appreciate both these sports to kind of do that mental exercise of thinking, you know, what can fit from here to here? What can go from there to there? Do you think that Derby does the cult of personality or idol like worship that ba- basketball does? Or yeah, I mean it's it's almost it's I think it's impossible not to. There's in in the we've had some press publish and like the ESPN articles or the when major news outlets put up a, a person when they're talking about roller derby in general, we've seen Bonnie Thunders is sure. the person who is usually like. Held up as an example of the sport. LeBron with, James of roller yes, derby. Remember that, one? <laughs> <laughs> that was Andy. Um, oh, I can't remember his, his last name. Andy. Uh, I can almost remember who wrote it because I was just looking at it the other day. But even within the sport, everybody. When I ask my my team or players around, who's your favorite player? Who's your favorite team? And they tell me these people who I've heard of and these people I don't know sometimes so it's it's hard when i go to tournaments because i love the sport but i don't watch tournaments and games that i'm not participating in as much as other people do so people know team styles of play who their rotation is all this and all that so there's definitely it just there just has to be because i think it's it's still somewhat inconceivable to think that you can do what the person that you're watching on your computer screen does and that's not a failing of anybody. It's just hard to imagine sometimes when you watch people do the things that they do at tournaments, when you watch jammers play the way they play and blockers play the way they play. Yeah, it's a, it's a step. It's a big step to imagine yourself doing those same things on a regular basis. So it's just a part of the game. I think that's part of what makes it great because that's what we grew up as, as baseball and, and basketball and football fans watching those superhuman type players and plays and just marveling at that. And it's great to put those people up on a pedestal, but it's also, you just have to remember that no matter what, and whether you're thinking in terms of you are a human and you are capable of amazing things, or just this is a young sport, you have all these resources available to you that even those people that you worship didn't have, and you can do these things. It, you just have to remember that, that you can do the same things or forge your own path and do the same things that these players do. And I also think that just naturally the, the way that roller derby is structured, the way that the camera is going to be focused on the jammer versus the four right. other you know, players from each team is has to do with it. You know, speaking to the whole you can do this aspect, the fact that for the most part, prior to 2015, everyone discovered Derby later in life. It wasn't a thing that you came up in, you know, junior Derby and played roller Derby. So that's also kind of very different from basketball in that you're recruited almost out of high school sometimes and play the sport. And by your, you know, late thirties, you're done. Derby's quite the opposite almost. <laughs> it's like <laughs> people start catching their, you know, getting their groove in their like late thirties, maybe in the sport what I found really interesting is that of all the people who were profiled in the documentary, the one who was framed as being the most humble and scrappiest of the players is the only one that's still actively involved in basketball. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, well, Mike's Mike's owns the the Hornets and he's doing a mediocre job of that. (laughs) But Steve is, is a championship winning coach. There's some players who just, there's some people who are involved in basketball who just have that or in sports. Let me, let me preface that. Let me go back. People who are involved in sports who just have a knack for doing the right thing. They can have all the knowledge and you could still not necessarily put it together, but except for college, Steve Kerr has won championships at the professional level as a coach. He was successful as an executive with the Suns, And now he uh, is a player. So, I think it speaks I, – I can't say it just speaks to his background because there's people who have done that who didn't have that same experience. Jerry West 
did not grow up in the same way Steve Kerr did, but he won a championship as a player, as an executive, and as I think a general manager. It's just different. But it was really interesting to think about the fact that Kerr <laughs> is like the last person who has an active role, really, in day-to-day NBA activities. And also having a really sort of hands-on direct job or position and role in molding the future of NBA Derby or NBA <laughs> basketball. <laughs> NBA <laughs> Derby coming, <laughs> coming to you in 2022. <laughs> That's going to no, be my let's, let's get some NBA roller derby collaborations. <laughs> I've said for a while now, we need to get some WNBA roller derby collaborations. Oh, yes. Yes. Hell it's, yes. it's right there for the taking. Dylan at the Apex is a huge basketball guy. He's a, a Toronto Raptors fan. He's a, an NBA fan. And he's shown that he watches WNBA too. When I mention it, a lot of the responses that we have back and forth on Twitter are because of our shared love for basketball. And like I said before, there's so many things within the sport of basketball that come into play within roller derby that are comparable that people can draw from. It's so, it, it, there's just so many good reasons to watch WNBA, I think for roller derby, both in terms of drawing for strategy, drawing for individual gain, individual improvement, and for just connecting these women-led sports, these um, you know, women-identifying sports, for them to collaborate and broaden their reach. Ditto. Point. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Agreed. It's interesting because don't you see that more with U.S. soccer with like U.S. women's soccer. Yeah, you really do. Right, you really do. I wonder why that is. That's oh, or even like women's hockey. (laughs) Well, that makes more sense, I'd say. Um, Yeah, uh, that's true too. Though you're you're right. (laughs) If they made a derby version of the Last Dance, which team would you want to see profiled and covered? Man, this is tough for me because, like I said, I, I'm not as, as into the backstage stuff as, or, or anything behind the scenes as much as other people are. Me, for my part, I think would be maybe that – well, I mean, Bonnie Thunders is coming out with that documentary about winning the championship with Gotham. I think we'll probably have uh, some of her uh, decision to move, move west and go, with, uh, go to Rose City. But it would be really cool to – see a team that won the Hydra or won the championships and then, you know, people left. So I, I guess it really would have to be Gotham. It's, it's hard to say. It, it, you know, I think it would be interesting to, to see if you could get it at a time where the sport was transitioning from its second generation in terms of the sport was speed is still fast, but slowing down a bit, people were doing a lot more strategically on defense, but maybe minor penalties were still part of the game where we were transitioning over from one whistle starts to two whistle starts and see who was on top then and how things were shifting. Like really when Victorian started coming into the picture of the championship picture, it'll be interesting to document any of those teams on one of their roads to the championship. So maybe either the first year Victorian won and what led up to that, or the first year that Gotham lost and what went up to that. Mm, that's interesting. That's, I like, I like your thinking. Uh, and I was kind of thinking along the same lines. I was going to say Gotham, the year that they, it was the last year that Bonnie and OMG were on the team and that they did the finals champs in Portland. Mm. I think that would have been interesting because not only, did Bonnie OMG leave the team, but also possibly V Diva, mm. if not shortly after. So I think that that would have been really interesting to watch. Because she went back to her home league for a minute, right? Yeah. She was kind of doing the commuting thing. She was yeah. commuting from Philly, like Pennsylvania, Pelconos area, what have you. Okay. Um, so that would be interesting to me to see. Also, maybe... Victorian too, like Victorian, like maybe the season that preceded, uh, you know, Shayna Saracen leaving, McSwagger leaving, 
I think Christy Demons also left that same season. That would also be interesting to watch. Also, and then if we want to flip it on the other, like, extreme, I would love to have watched how a team like Dos Por Cuatro from Argentina. Yes. No, you're totally right. Right? Like, they're come up. Because uh, that was such a meteoric, and you know what? would suck because we would, Windy City would be a total foil in that since we played them at Big O and won by five and then got murked by them at the championship playoffs that year. <laughs> so that was part of their step-up year. It, they came not out of nowhere, but it would, I would definitely watch that. I would watch that 100%. And the like economic hardship that it takes to, to make it. Oh, that I could see it. I could see it in my head. I could, let me tell you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so good. Those would, be, those would be my picks. Anyway, last thoughts about Last Dance. It was necessary. You know, what's funny to me is that I have wanted to go to Madison Square Garden since the first time I can remember hearing the Oregon play the defense chant. That is ingrained within my soul. When I hear that, I get chills every time because it's a big moment. It's New York City. You know, it's the Mecca of basketball. As much as I have pride in Chicago, and I always will say Chicago, Hoopers are the best Hoopers on the planet. When you go to New York, it's, it's just a different feeling. You go to Madison Square Garden, and it's a tight game in the final minutes, and you hear the organ just play. Just like when it starts heating up in there, it's like, oh, man, I can't. I'm getting it right now. Like, it's chilly, and we were outside in the kiddie pool, but I can't, I can't dissociate with that. I can't dissociate that from anything. If you're a hip hop, are you a hip hop person? I am sort of more Do of that know, era than now. <laughs> uh, Stretch and Bobito. Yes. Yes. So I bought Bobito's book about sneakers way back when I was en- enthralled with his stories and the people he interviewed about coming up and wearing sneakers in New York, um, going from Chuck Taylors to superstars, shell toes and all the way up through there. And that was a whole part of it. So the picture of like the kids sitting on top of the school by Rucker Park watching Dr. J with the huge Afro play. It's just, there's something about it, about, I think the watching the pure expression of basketball in that, which is to me at no, no matter what level you're playing at, whether it's playground, grade school, college, high school, international, professional, you put, 10 people on a court, you put a ball and two hoops at the end, you're going to get a a period of time where people are going to be going hard at each other. They're going to talk trash. They're going to put moves on each other. People on the side are going to be like, ooh, and that's basketball. It doesn't matter who's playing, how good they are, what gender they are, what age they are. That's what you're going to get. And I think that that's an immutable truth. And that's what was on display. And that's why it was so cool to see people like Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi talking about it in the same way that you have people like Hannibal Burris and um, Joe Mantegna talking about it in the same way you have people like Chris Paul and uh, Damian Lillard talking about it. Can I tell you like a quick, 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 quick footnote, side note. That was such a surprise to hear that Madison Square Garden was Jordan's favorite place to play. Where was Michael Jordan born? Okay, but he was in Brooklyn like five minutes. But where <laughs> like, was he? You know, where he was claimed, he born though? And you know, and he claims Wilmington, North Carolina, as his birthplace. As like, you know, I don't know. It's true. You're you're right. You are perfectly right. But there's that Crooklyn Dodgers video from the Spike Lee movie. It's him and Mike Tyson at the beginning, and there's this little short clip, and it's like, my name is Mike Tyson. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I'm representing Brownsville. And then they cut to Michael Jordan with the Birmingham Barons practice jersey on. He's like, hi, my name is Michael Jordan. I was born in Brooklyn. And the way I am from the South Side, 74th Street of Chicago. And when you say where Brooklyn, where Brooklyn at, is Brooklyn in the house? For some reason, that hits me deep in my heart the way it would for somebody from Gowanus. I don't Mm. know what it's about, (laughs) but it just does. That's sweet. I love that. But also, like, and nowadays, speaking of then now, to say you're from Brooklyn and rapping for Brooklyn. It's so different, right? No, but it would mean that you're a Nets fan. Yeah. 
Uh, there was another thing that really struck me when they were talking, like playing the New Jersey Nets. It's like, oh, this is such a throwback. This is a throwback, right? Yeah. <laughs> we were beat by the Nets. New Jersey Nets. <laughs> it was wild. Anyway, yeah, thank you. That was awesome. Yeah, no, I, I'm really glad I watched it. I recommend it to anyone on the fence who might kind of just, you know, pass over it on Netflix or what have you. Would you recommend this for derby folks and skaters definitely because i we, we didn't really even get into is the the leadership aspect of it like different ways to lead your team say more and, go for it well, this was you, totally like, planned this is why <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> well it, it's definitely it's so good to watch that because you have to figure out if you become no matter what type of player you become you have to kind of you have to figure out what your presence should be within the team and if you're a great player, people are going to look to you to lead the team. And Mike was very much a lead with and the players on his team all acknowledge this. It was, it was spellbinding to watch. These guys who had physically gotten into it with Mike in practice talk about how much they respected him. When somebody like Will Purdue took two punches in the face and was very just upfront about that and he was always like and then you see this and you see what he does in practice and you see how he goes about his business and you realize that it's i think he said he's like you realize it's not personal he's trying to win and he wants to make sure everybody's on board with how hard he's going to go and i turned to my 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 girlfriend my partner who i live with who plays derby and i asked her if somebody gave you like a one-two to the face in practice, would you ever at any point in your time look back and say, yeah, you, I respected that person for what they did. And she was like, no. So you have to, it's, it's really interesting to me how he led as an all time great and how Scotty Pippins led as an all time great. People said that Pip would put an arm around your shoulder and kind of carry you through. Whereas Mike was just like a needler and he would hit you with the harsh words and you really had to get in his chest for him to respect you verbally outwardly. I think this might be also a gendered difference. And I wonder about that too, as a coach, there's things that I would want to do as a coach and not in a bad way, just in terms of like being a little bit more vocal, being a little louder at practice that I think that I've always thought that I, in order to maintain what we need to do as a culture to move forward, me as a man, that I cannot do with my team that other people on the team can do. Mm -hmm. And as much as I want to realize that, it hurts me inside because there's sometimes where I think (sighs) there's sometimes you just need to like prod somebody a little more in order to draw out the best of them. And it hurts me if I, don't feel that I can do that because I want everybody who steps on the, on the track as a player of a team that I'm associated with to find their final form, to be the absolute best player that they can be. So I think, it, it's interesting. yeah, I, I feel like I, I can totally see what you're saying. And then I also think that for women, it is such a heavy lift to even become accustomed to playing a contact sport, to even play a sport after college. Yeah. It's for your own like gratification and a contact sport, no less. I feel like that is such a heavy lift for some that for I don't want to speak for everyone and I definitely don't want to generalize or make a a statement I'm mostly basing on personal plus experience that I've heard that I think that people reach their threshold with you know like people reach their neck I think that there there isn't the tolerance for for that sort of aggro drill sergeanty treatment yeah there it's at a certain point, you're like, I don't need this. Like, I, yeah. I, got something, I can do yeah. something else. Exactly. Yeah. It's also a real minefield, especially as coming, coming as a person of color to a predominantly white sport, those sort of dynamics. I feel like it was maybe Queen Lucy Tifa who's like, you don't leave who you are outside of the doors in Derby. You, so everything that you are when you're t- off skates, you are on skates and all of the dynamics and complexities are still exist on the track. Like even if people want to act like 
roller skating and roller derby is some sort of utopia. It's not, you know, we're humans. So I feel like that's also another aspect that might, might add to the mix, might add, add to the, you know, might make things a little hairy, you know? Because yeah. I feel like as a woman of color, like if I'm too aggressive, am I too aggressive? Or like, or, you right. know, well, you know that there was a tournament a couple years back in which Atlanta had experienced a lot of racial microaggressions, including yeah. calls. That the, um, yeah, I know Offici- what you're talking about. They were like punished, you know, with fouls and penalties that white counterparts weren't seemingly getting so i think that's also part of it that's wild to me to think about too as an announcer as a coach i haven't gone to that many tournaments at all as compared to people i know especially the officials i know and just to think about that where i know it comes up in some respects but typically it's because a player has shown that they are that they have a reputation that does not come up does not intersect with their color or gender or anything else it's them as a player so to hear that that was coming up in roller derby was jarring to say the least and then if we want to talk about like the cult of celebrity you know the way that it begs the question how the bulls might have responded to jordan's hard style if he wasn't jordan if it had been another player you know maybe that wouldn't have flown <laughs> like had it been someone else trying to be the the taskmaster well that's what i think was when you when you hear basketball players talk about it like larry bird was from downstate indiana but and i think cats you know gave him gave him a lot of um of shit for that like even the the pistons famously said like if larry bird was black he'd be another basketball player which is wild to say but a a guy like charles barkley who is not the most eloquent who is not the most progressive who has said a lot of things wrong in terms of the context that we've discussed here got charles barkley was very simple with it when you got on the court with larry bird you realized he could play ball didn't matter if he was white, blue, black, or orange, he was a good basketball player. And I think that's what most of the time basketball gets right. It's been different for a lot of European players and players who aren't American in general, that people have a hard time reaching that idea that, oh, this guy is not just where they come from. They're a basketball player. They know their, their craft and they can play. But they're, they're, getting, they're getting a lot more to the point of – when you step on, it doesn't matter where you come from. You're a good basketball player. Can you hoop? You can hoop. Okay, let's go. And I think that there's some there's some some ways to go with roller derby, obviously, about people getting past what you look like or what you sound like, as opposed to what you do between the in between the lines on the oval. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all do <laughs> off the derby and on and derby. You know, true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, all right. So. I like to close by asking for a self-care tip (laughs) Um, and it doesn't, you know, have to be bath bombs and beauty masks. (laughs) It can be whatever. I I need to try those though. I really should. (laughs) I need a bathtub that fits me. Uh, (laughs) So what is your favorite self-care tip? Spider. Uh, just for, for roller derby or in general? Whatever comes to mind. You take or. walks. I like taking walks. I know that it. Mm, I hate it because not everybody can take a walk after the sun goes down. That's always when I found it most relaxing, But I and I want to change that for everybody. But just take walks. That's right. Get out and take walks. Have some music on. Don't have some music on. And try and extend yourself out into the space around you so that you can hear and feel and sense as much as you can. I think it helps you as a player in terms of the sport. I think it helps you as a person in terms of your life. And I think it just can be really relaxing, especially if if you're around water. Water always gets me. Um, I think it's just nice to be be able to do that around water. And I've gotten Mm. lucky being with the lake and the lagoons at the parks. But take walks. Get away from everybody. Get away from the sounds of, of normal, regular working life and 
it by yourself. I love it. Thank you. What about holding space? What would you like to hold space for? Uh, I was playing softball a couple of years ago and a guy uh, congratulated me on something that I thought was so run of the mill. People were warming up behind where I was playing first base and it was very close and it was making me nervous and uncomfortable. And I told them, it's like, hey, I know y'all don't have too much space, but could you go on the sidewalk away from where we're playing? And the dude who had just gotten the hit and was standing on first base was like, yo, good job asking for what you needed, man. And I had never really considered that concept before. So I, I bet this has come up already, but do not ever be afraid to ask for what you inherently need. Figure out what those things are that you need and not don't just want because desire is different from necessity. But once you figure out those needs, do not be afraid to stand up and ask someone, here's what I need right now. Otherwise, we, you know, we can't really move forward well because it, I think, is difficult to sometimes to put yourself out there like that. You feel like you're overreaching because I, I almost felt that way. Like I felt like I was intruding on what they were doing. But being able to ask for what you need is 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 important in, in as anything else. I think in terms of of holding your space, especially because it makes it reaffirms your relevance mm. to those around you and to yourself too, probably. Right? Definitely, definitely to yourself. Yes. You're right. Yeah, thank you. I love that. And last but not least, who is your MVP? And it could be someone or something derby or non derby related. My mom, who who battled with me for so many years as I was coming up, knowing that she was an only child and I was an only child and she was a single parent. And she basically just did what she had to do in the context of all the other things she was dealing with. So uh, mom is, is the, my, my, my most valuable player for sure. My friend, Ashley, who has, has no, nowhere near roller derby, but I've, that's my forever friend for so many things that she does and has done and has gone through and, and will I love her. I respect her so much. And my, the players on my team that I've, that I've coached, I, I, it's, it's hard. You, you asked me the, the, the most loaded question that I was like, I could give you 50 names. <laughs> 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 but so definitely funny. those two. And, um, Am I gonna have to like break out the violin and do like the Oscars? Oh, we're like, music. Get, this, get the wrap it up box. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll, I'll go with the last few. I think my, my, my girlfriend, Christine, has stepped up in the ways that I'm just even, I'm not even finding out about. I don't know about a tenth of her life. And I can't, I can't, I almost can't even say that I'm proud of her because I don't know everything that she's gone through. And she has, I have no <laughs> right to say that. You know what I'm saying? But you just think what you I, might be proud of her? <laughs> well, it's just like, I have no standing to say that because she's done so many other things that I can't be proud of her for that makes me feel like i'm over her in some way when i'm not but in the way i've seen her step up on the track and make so much more of herself these last few years is incredible absolutely incredible and so i definitely want to highlight her for sure so pika brews 815 city roller second wind captain yes those definitely those three those those three are my most valuable players and um if you're a poetry person, if you're a people of color poetry person, look up my man, Nate Marshall, that I went to grade school with. Um, he is, he is a, an intelligent man on the highest or of the highest order. And what made you bring him up? What made you think of him? Right now? He's a, he's a good dude. I took a walk through his neighborhood a few years ago. And, you know, like I said, we went to grade school together. We would like, we weren't in the same grade, but we would like bounce off each other on the playground and things like that. And he, I, I remember reading some of his poems and it's kind of interesting to realize that the same person that you came up with when you were 10 and 11 and 12 years old, who were, you were doing 10 and 11, 12 years old things with is just a great, like a great intelligent person who was able to conceive and perceive things that you wouldn't have thought possible that you don't think about on a daily basis. And that's somebody who Nate is mm -hmm. when I've read the things that he, his works and the things he's put down. So 
I definitely wanted to spotlight him. He's somebody I think that everybody should read, reach out to, because even even as he's done this, I mean, he's he writes poems about his experience. He's in the Louder Than a Bomb documentary that came out uh, years back. But I remember we talked about the Jay-Z and Nas feud and who won that when I was talking to him. And that's the kind of person he is. He can go wherever. And he definitely told me, in, te- in terms of holding space, he talked to me about when Chicago Magazine wanted to interview him. And they asked him, hey, where do you want to do this? And he said, let's go to Harold's Chicken Shack on 108th Street because that was an, he had spent his entire life taking two and three buses and train transfers to get to the places that he needed to be. And it was time for somebody to come to him. And I always, that struck me, that struck me and it still strikes me today. Wow. Thank you so much, Spider. This is awesome. I really appreciate it. I thank you. I appreciate you bringing me on. This was so much fun. And I, I love, this is so much fun. I can't, I can't put it any better than that. 